This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, Washington Post Pulitzer Prize winning book critic Carlos Lasada offers his thoughts on the volume of books written about Donald Trump and his presidency. He's interviewed by New York Times book review editor, Pamela Paul. Hi, Carlos. So good to talk to another book journalist or book critic. How do you primarily think of yourself these days? Uh, I still think I very much uh, see myself as a as a book critic. Um, this book is just sort of uh, an, an extension of, of that work. Um, but these days, I feel like I'm a political journalist also in in many ways, and uh, just using books as as a means to to that kind of work. And also an author, obviously, this is your first book. What was it? Did you know that you always wanted to write a book as a book critic, or is that something that you actually kind of steered clear of? Uh, I did not have a sense that I wanted to necessarily um, be an author or or write a book. Um, reading other people's books was was plenty uh, for me. And I, I worried a little bit that if I went through the process of writing a book, I would end up um, sort of far too sympathetic to to authors and and ruin me for my day job. But I think it's been really useful actually to see what that side of the process is is like and all the all the work that goes into creating that finished product that I usually just get at the at the tail end. Do you think it's going to change your approach at all as a book critic? Um I think it almost has to. I don't know how it will, though. I, I, uh, um, I want to see when I'm when I'm sort of back in the swing of just reviewing a lot of books. Um, but I, I suspect that it that it has to in in some ways um, beyond just sympathy uh, for for authors. Um, I I hope that it'll it'll give me a better sense of the decision making that goes into. Um, you know, what a book covers, uh, you know, how many chapters, you know, why do you devote attention to this or to that? Um, so I, I hope it'll make me better at my main job, which is, which is as a book critic. Well, now you know all the answers. <laughs> but this book, obviously, you didn't steer too far away from what it is that you do during the day and that you read 150 books about the Trump era for this book. Do you think of this as a book about books or is it something else? At a at a basic level, I think it is it is a book about books. I think of it like um, like Kramer's coffee table book about coffee tables uh, from 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 Seinfeld. Um, but I I hope that it simply uses books to try to understand a moment, to try to get a, a snapshot of a moment. And so I think in that sense, it could have been a lot of things. It, you know, it could have been it could have been film. It could have been theater. It could have been fiction, right? Because I, I focus mainly on on nonfiction. Um, and so I think it is mainly a book about this this moment in American civic life. And books just happen to be the the prism through which I I understand it. You call this a book also about the intellect an intellectual history of the Trump era, a, a subtitle that some people might consider to be, you know, 
sort of inherently oxymoronic, but what do you mean by an intellectual history? Hmm. Well, you know, there, there are a lot of ways to imagine an intellectual history. There, there's been this common exercise during the Trump years of uh, trying to find that one book from like 1973 that you know, anticipated everything or the, this one essay that saw it coming. And I've, I've done some of that myself, you know, guilty. Um, but that's, that's not the kind of, of, uh, of book I wanted to write. I wanted to grapple with how America's public intellectuals and writers and insiders and academics and journalists um, how they were thinking about this moment in in real time. So maybe a, a better way to to explain it is to think of it as um, as a, a snapshot of an intellectual moment that I hope perhaps future intellectual historians can can look at to get a sense of of how we thought about Trump in in the moment. It's interesting that you you talk about books that oversimplified things into this is how we got here. This is how this happened. And it right after the 2016 election, there was this increased interest in sales of in particular novels that sort of presaged the current moment, 1984, of course, Brave New World, all these um, sort of post-apocalyptic yeah. um, novels suddenly became bestsellers again. And then you had the books that sort of said, well, this is what this means. This is what's happening in the current moment. Now, are we moving into this a sort of third phase of this is what this is going to mean moving forward? This is what's going to happen next. These are the implications. I hope so. I hope that that we'll be getting that new um, that new wave of of books. Um, I think that you know, there's, there's been this, I mean, and the, the quantity of books that I, that I read and reviewed and, and thought about is sort of testament to this. There's been this, this obsession um, with trying to understand how we got here, um, you know, why, um, why Donald Trump was elected in 2016 uh, and what, what the future can, can hold in American politics. I, I do hope that we might try to move beyond a sort of singular obsession with the occupant of the Oval Office and um, do a little better at uh, grappling with the forces that that brought Trumpism, you know, into American life. Thus the title, presumably, what were we thinking, not what were they thinking or what was he thinking? Yes, I, I definitely, I, there's been enough psychoanalyzing of Donald Trump in, in book form. I did not want to do more of that. Um, and in fact, the the original discussion of the title uh, was in, included and started with what were what were they thinking? But I wanted to be more all encompassing with that. I didn't want to absolve anyone of of responsibility or of agency. Um, and it's certainly not a book about what administration officials were thinking, um, though there is some of that in in some of the the insider memoirs. Um, but I want it to be as as broad as possible with this sort of sweep of 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 thought and of writing. What did you make of the fact that that early interest, um, those early books that people started to turn to to explain what was going on, were mostly fiction, novels, and memoirs? 
Mm-hmm. I did some of that myself. I, I went back and read um, uh, Sinclair Lewis, it, it Can't Happen Here, and The Plot Against America, Philip Roth, and, and wrote about, about those in the time. So I, I certainly engaged in that, in that sort of soul searching through, through fiction. But I think it spoke to how so many people thought that um, this just seemed kind of impossible. Right. Uh, no one, you know, if, if it's about what were we thinking, we weren't thinking that hard. Right. There was this sense in which uh, Trump couldn't be elected. Right. Even 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 Trump's own campaign didn't necessarily think it was going to happen. And so I think that we drew on fiction early on because um, it fit in with that sense of, of unreality, of kind of like um, this this sense of. There's been this sort of um, weird, like time displacement vibe that 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 the the Trump years um, has has given us, where um, people talk about how you know the weeks feel like months and the months feel like years, and all that I think is is part of that sense um, that this is not normal, that that this is not uh, something that that really could be happening, um, and so I think fiction was the natural outlet for. Uh, for that, even though we sort of quickly moved beyond it. Well, speaking of quickly and speaking of abnormal tempos, the usual pattern with books um, about a certain, you know, a particular administration is that people leave office, their cabinets, you know, disband, and maybe five, 10 years later, someone in retirement writes a memoir, you know, Dean Acheson will write present at the creation. Now you have in this administration, people writing memoirs, you know, sort of two minutes and tell-alls out the door. Um, what do you make of that? And, and, and to what extent did you devote yourself to reading those kind of um, quickie tell-all memoirs from people who were in the Trump circle and left? Yeah, remember how um, insane it seemed when George Stephanopoulos wrote his memoir of the Clinton years while Clinton was still in office? I mean, it was this huge controversy, right, about, about how, you know, how, how dare he do that? And he was uh, sort of exiled from, from Clinton world for a long time. Um, that is just now, you know, absolutely like, you know, you, the moment you're fired or you resign, you like go straight to the literary agency, you know? And, um, and so I, I did try to read a lot of those books. Um, I didn't read all of them as soon as they were out, you know, I sort of, you know, came to others later on and there's a certain urgency and immediacy with them that I think is great, is helpful. They, they sort of give you. Um, an instant sense of of what it was like inside, um, but I think that also makes them a little, you know, what's the word? It it, it makes them feel um, ephemeral, right? It, it it makes them it makes them feel like they you know they they aren't going to last very long, and they'll be superseded by just the next you know immediate insider tell all memoir of of the Trump administration. Also, with with all these books, they they just make you. Um, you know, they obviously present themselves in the best possible light. Everyone is the hero of their own story. And, um, and of course, all those stories can't be consistent and can't be, can't be um, exactly true. I was going to say, like, did you get this kind of Rashomon-like experience where you're like, okay, and now we are switching the angle and seeing this particular meeting from this person's point of view? There was a lot of that. In fact, there, were, there was even one particular meeting of Trump um, early on in the presidency meeting at the Pentagon, 
uh, with a bunch of senior officials who are basically staging an intervention, trying to get him to um, kind of see the world their way. And multiple books, including insider uh, memoirs, but also journalistic accounts of 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 the early Trump period, uh, did the same thing. You know, they just all obsess with you know one meeting or one moment or or one conversation. And uh, you put them all together, and you basically get like a running transcript of of the of the meeting. It sort of feels almost cinematic. Yeah, there's a line in your introduction where you say, "Individually, these books try to show us a way forward. Collectively, they show how we're stuck." What did you mean by that? What I meant with that is that I think a lot of the books of the Trump era reflect the very same blind spots and um, sort of failures of imagination that that gave us Trump and Trumpism in, in the first place. Um, so people bring to all these stories uh, and all these accounts um, their own blinders. You know, so all the political scientists, you know, say this is the death of democracy. The philosophers say it's death of truth. The internationalists say it's, you know, it's death of alliances. Um, and the historians, of course, just say, you know, we've been here before. We've 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 always seen this. Um, and so you also see people finding validation for their long-held beliefs and theories about the world in Trump. Um, and that's everyone from. Naomi Klein, whose book No is Not Enough, you know, says, look, Trump is just proof of everything I've been saying all along to um, your colleague at The Times, James Poniewozik, who wrote a really entertaining book called Audience of One, uh, where he says, you know, Trump is is the ultimate television character and is proof of all the things I've been writing about TV culture for for decades. Um, And so it doesn't mean they're all wrong. It just means that you know, there's there's an easy tendency to um, to retreat into familiar arguments mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to evaluating this period, um, and also, frankly, to just speak to the converted, to speak to uh, whatever silo you're in. A lot of the the books that came out of what I call sort of generally resistance writing uh, fall into that category. You know, they are. They're entirely inward looking. Um, they they look at Trump and see a broken moral compass and therefore assume that, you know, there's always points north. Um, and so I found that a little worrisome. You're coming to this book probably with your own lens. You're a recent immigrant and a new new uh, citizen, rather, um, not a recent immigrant, right. <laughs> but newly but, a but US citizen. Yes. citizen. Um, and your background um, is largely in foreign policy. Did you find yourself kind of looking at things through your own lens, lens and, and did you try to resist that in your assessment? Uh, I'm sure that I did. Um, I'll leave it to to you know, critics and reviewers who are having at the book to to um, identify my my lenses. I think that um, certainly I, I came to the United States as a as a child, but I only recently became an American citizen. Um, Twenty sixteen was the first election that I that I was able to to vote in, um, and so I think that that certainly has to have an impact on how I how I see this this period. How I certainly how I read books about the immigration debates of this time. Um, but 
I also think that becoming a citizen, you know, immigrating uh, to a new country, becoming a citizen is is sort of an act of faith. I think in in um, in whatever is the place that you're going to, right? Is is this this notion that you have confidence uh, in in the experiment that suddenly you're part of, um, and so I think underlying uh, maybe my my writing of of this book is a sense of of faith in the American experiment, faith that you know despite all the mayhem and all the fighting and all the controversy, um, that um, that 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 takes you someplace. Uh, but I also think my you know, it's that's just one identity, right? I think we all carry multiple identities that come to the fore in different moments. Um, my faith, not just in America, but um, in in reading, uh, I think was was significant in in my writing this book. Uh, and they come together when you think about how, you know, this is a country that has always defined itself in writing, right? From from common sense on, um, you know, all the all the big battles. Uh, are are litigated um, on paper, not not only on paper, but but on on paper. What can books do in trying to give a sense of this current moment that, say, journalism or the internet can't do? Or what does it do better? What yeah. does it do better? Um, I think, you know, and this is going to be unfair to journalism and to the internet, but. I think okay. that, that, that there's there's possibly a uh, a little bit of greater staying power in in the or there or there can be um, in the act of committing words to book form. I think even our our colleagues at at the Washington Post and the New York Times, for example, who um, you know are are very talented journalists who have covered this. Um, presidency in in great detail, you know, uh, through the just daily ongoing journalism, uh, many of them have felt the need to try to take a step back and and go deeper in in book form. And uh, I'm I'm glad that they're doing that. I've I've read a lot of those books, um, and so I I feel that if if journalism is supposed to be the first draft of of history, as as um as Phil Graham said, the books are a, a first draft of, of how, we, how we think more deeply about that history, how we see ourselves in, in that history, how we decide what that history means. Now, we're going to be rewriting those forever. I, I think that the, um, I, I can only imagine that the best books on the Trump era uh, have, have yet to be written. And that's a, I hope, a non-commentary uh, on the quality of the books you had to read for this book. <laughs> no, there were, I mean, there were, there were terrific books, but there's just, there's just going to be a lot more to think through and a lot more to understand. Um, and even just new information to, to obtain as, as documents are declassified, as new investigations come forward. Um, I think we're going to keep learning a lot more. I mean, there's a ton of memoirs. I mean, we, we talked about how many memoirs have been coming up from Trump officials. Um, there's going to be a lot more. And and on on some of the on some of the key debates, I mean, I want to read Anthony Fauci's memoir if he writes one. You know, mm-hmm. I want to read Kirsten Nielsen's memoir of her time at Homeland Security. Um, you know, those are those are essential uh, narratives that have yet to be fully told. And so, 
um, no, there've been wonderful books about, about the, the Trump era so far. Um, I just, I, I think that we're going to be with them for a long time to come. I know that you are not writing about the man, Donald Trump himself. Nonetheless, <laughs> he is an unavoidable figure in all of this. And one of the things that I think it seems at least writers have been sort of saying in one way or another is that he's a very difficult figure to kind of pin down to get an understanding of like what's going on inside of him. Um, in the same way that I think biographers and famously um, Edmund Morris had trouble writing about um, Ronald Reagan. Reagan. You know, they, didn't, yeah. they just couldn't get a sense. Did you have that trouble? You know, I had a slightly different uh, perspective on that. Um, this whole project for me began even before the book, uh, just, you know, deciding that this was my beat, that I was going to be reading all these books, uh, started in the summer of 2015 when Trump was first a, uh, a, a candidate for, for the Republican nomination uh, and was suddenly doing really well. So I, I went back and just read a bunch of his books. Uh, even, you know, even ghostwritten books reveal a lot about how someone wishes to be perceived. And so uh, I read eight Trump books, including, you know, the, the foundational document, The Art of the Deal and, and, and several others. And it's all there. Like everything we've seen about Donald Trump is there. His kind of petty grievances and his um, obsession with kind of wealth and sex and his insecurities and his, um, uh, you know, mistrust of the press, yet, you know, constant quest for its approval, his willingness to, to lie and deceive. Um, it was all in his own books. Um, and so, you know, Trump can be shocking, but if you if you just spent time with his own words, it, it could not have been all that surprising. And anything surprising yeah. though in there? Anything that you thought, oh, you know, people don't realize this about him. Uh, one thing that I caught on to uh, early on, and then you start seeing it through a lot of his books, is that, and maybe this has ceased to be surprising now, you know, uh, four years or, you know, nearly four years in, but he did not, he, he liked acquiring things. He liked winning. He liked, um, uh, you know, getting the notoriety and attention that came with some big deal. Then to managing that thing, to running it, um, he got bored really quickly. He got bored really quickly. And so I remember early on, I just thought like, I can imagine him wanting to win the presidency. I can't imagine him really enjoying being president. Um, because that's a lot of work and that doesn't, didn't seem to be his MO, um, in the books. He just kind of liked to go to the next thing, you know, and you see that in his personal life, you see it in, in all sorts of, of, of ways. And so I remember thinking, this is a guy who really wants to win the presidency. Winning is everything, right? His world is, you know, you're a killer or you're a loser. And, um, but I couldn't imagine him really enjoying the presidency, uh, and which is why we've seen that the the parts that he has been drawn to the most have been the sort of theatrics and atmospherics of the presidency. You know, he loves signing stuff because that's what presidents do, right? He likes, you know, rallies because, you know, he feeds off that, that adulation. Um, but he hasn't been a deal maker in office. He hasn't been able to do all those things that 
the 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 day to day you know grubby job of 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 presidenting, um, such as even you know getting the intelligence briefings and digesting them. So that was something that that struck me when I wrote about him first back in the summer 2015, and um, but that I've seen I've seen sort of validated throughout throughout the past four years. I have another question about your subtitle because what you're talking about, um, it's easy to think of historical precedents to the Trump era and sort of the precedents that you would go to would depend obviously on your political uh, leanings. But how did you define the era? Because a lot of people, when Donald Trump took office, sort of went back and they read Hannah Arendt and they read earlier um, biographies of what they would be considered authoritarian regimes. People went back, they looked at um, World War II figures. How did you define the sort of when these books start in terms of looking at the Trump era? Right. That was a big challenge for me early on because I, I felt that there was the risk of being too narrow in how I defined the period. But then I felt that opening up, opening it up too much, or it, it would sort of, there was always going to be something else that I would have to read and to incorporate. Um, and so I, decided to just be kind of ruthless and and cast my own focus sort of narrowly like okay I'm going to look at books that came out between 2016 and 2020 and even that is unfair because the books that came out in 2016 were not written in any way to uh, make sense of Donald Trump I mean a book like Hillbilly Elegy became a Trump book it was not a Trump book to begin with um and so I, I decided, you know, and that'll be for, for you and, 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 and critics to, to determine if it was wise or not, to just be very focused on this particular period because I knew that opening the door um, would just, um, you know, bring the deluge of, of, of different works that I would want to explore. I did that sometimes just for myself Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as I was reading and and writing, I would read other books on on periods that I or experiences that I thought were were relevant. Um, but I decided to keep the focus of the books in my book on largely books that people were writing to grapple with this thing that was in front of us. Let's talk about Hillbilly Elegy for a moment, because that was the first of what has, I think, become a kind of subgenre of books mm-hmm. that reflected something that happened in journalism after the election, which was everybody sort of said, let's send our reporters out to the heartland. Let's send our reporters to these, um, you know, industrial cities and um, rural areas and figure out who are the Trump voters. And that was kind of the one book or the first book that people latched onto. How well do you think that book kind of told that story? And and are there others that did it equally or even better? Yeah, I think Hillbilly Elegy told J.D. Vance's story uh, very well, right? I think it was um, it was a very well written book. It was it was a very affecting book to read, um, but I think a lot of it was uh, timing that made people seize on it as well. This is the Trump explainer book, right? And I think that was probably unfair to um, to the book itself and 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 to and to the Trump voter, right? In the in the sense that. You know, Vance tells a very personal story of um, 
growing up between Kentucky and then mainly in Ohio. Uh, and his own rather conservative politics, uh, you know, color the way he he sees that experience. Um, but it had such broad appeal as the sort of, you know, quintessential Trump voter book, because I think it it had, you know, it had a very kind of, you know, bootstraps thing, like don't blame anyone else for your troubles, you know, um, that's a very loser thing to do, you know, his, his grandmother tells him that. Um, and so, you know, he goes to the Marines and that shapes him up, you know, um, but it also had a very, so that's more of like maybe in a, in a rough sense, the kind of conservative appeal, but it had the, the sort of appeal to, to the left as well, because, um, you know, he works his way up to the meritocracy, ends up at Yale Law School, and um, he, um, you know, the, the, it, it also kind of affirms some kind of liberal suspicions of the white working class and the kind of like the social pathologies of, of, of this community. Um, and so it had something for everyone. It's sort of, you know, and that's why I think it, it became kind of across the spectrum, this, this, this book that, that people relied on. Um, a book like Heartland by Sarah Smarsh, you know, is, um, it's about her experience growing up in Kansas, farm country, um, but very much from the left, you know, very much right. from, from, a, from a totally different uh, political perspective. Um, what was interesting is that the publishers really pitched it as, and this is the liberal hillbilly elegy when it yeah, was coming and, out. And, you know, that's, that's, that's unfair to, you know, to, to Smarsh and, un, you know, it's, it was his own book, you know. In fact, it was in the works for my understanding is for for a long time before that. Um, it wasn't in, in any way a a response to to JD Vance, not not in a in a in a temporal sense anyway. Um, and you know, these are it's not just like the difference between you know the mountains and the plains, right? These were these were just different ideologies that came to bear on on um, on this one political reality that is the, the, the struggles of, of the white working class. Um, so I think that we put these books in conversation with each other. I certainly did that in, in, in my book. I, I start, I, you know, the opening chapter of the book is about all these, all these books that I call the, the Heartlandia uh, genre. And I spend a lot of time contrasting J.D. Vance and, and Sarah Smarsh. I also think a lot of the authors who aren't memoirists, who are like more of these journalists that you talk about who, who, you know, dove into, you know, every Rust Belt town and Chrome counter diner they could find, um, often you know, brought their own preconceptions to what they were covering, which is sometimes inevitable. Well, here's another gross oversimplification, but it strikes me that, that you know, a good portion of the books that you describe in your book are books that explicitly set out to say, okay, here, I'm going to explain to you what's happening here. And then there are books like Hillbilly Elegy, like Sarah Smarsh's Heartland, that don't set out to do that, but which you found to be perhaps in many ways better ways to sort of vehicles to explain this period than the books that were sort of going at it directly. Uh, I think that's right. I think that I, I felt, um, you know, good books have to accept kind of messiness, right? And when, when everything is too perfectly tied up in a bow, I, I always worry like what's been left out of this, you know, what, what, what am I not getting? And, 
you know, I found um, this pair of books uh, that actually about, you know, that did that, that went out to look at, you know, the, the, the Trump voter, quote unquote. Um, and in some cases, they even profiled the same people, um, <laughs> which was bizarre. Like there's this one voter in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, right, who was a longtime Democrat labor organizer who switched to Trump in 2016. And he's Harry. prominently featured, Ed Harry, he's prominently featured in, in two different books. And the crazy thing is these, these books give him significantly different motivations for supporting Donald Trump. Uh, in one book, he's this economic populist. You know, he worries the Democrats have forgotten, you know, the, the working class. In another book, he's a 9-11 truther, culture warrior. Um, and really, he's the same guy, I suspect. Uh, but often he's interpreted through the prisms that, that, that journalists and, and writers bring to the story. Uh, and I don't want to sit in sit in judgment of of that i just i just wanted to point it out and and show how hard it is sometimes to to avoid that so you've mentioned these prisms and these sort of areas of expertise that people kind of look through the particular lenses we haven't talked explicitly about the the most obvious one which is ideological that, that we live in such an incredibly polarized you know period right now in america and i'm wondering you know did you sort of have to try really hard to find books that, you know, were not sort of ideologically 100% in the tank for Trump or in the resistance? Like, was it, was it, I mean, I guess they're the never Trumpers, which are sort of over here. How hard was it to find books in the middle? Uh, it was, well, the, I don't know if it's the middle that we're looking for, right? Because you may end up, it's not like you have to be in the middle between resistance and base to get a, a clear perspective. Um, you just have to not be sort of in the tank one way or the other. You may end up in, in a different place. Um, so what, what I often did is I obviously, I, I read a bunch of books just over the course of the four years, books that I was reviewing often for the Washington Post. Um, but then when I realized I was going to try to, to take a, a bigger, more sweeping look at, at these books, I went back and sort of backfilled um, you know, different areas that maybe I'd read, you know, five books on this, but I want to read five more. Um, and there I could really kind of pick and choose, you know, different, different perspectives. And that was such a luxury for me to, to have the, the time to do that. I can only, you know, I, I could never do that, like as, as an ongoing book critic, and I can only do it as, as an author in, in this case, where I had a little bit of time. And so, for instance, on these books about the white working class, I found this book that I had completely missed the first time. Um, it's called We're Still Here by Jennifer Silva, a sociologist. And she, at first I thought it was going to be very similar to the others. You know, she spent time in Pennsylvania coal country talking to people. And I found though that she was able to, first she pointed out that, you know, the heartland is not entirely white. The working class is not just the white working class it is, as it has been sort of branded. And that this debate that we've had about the motivations of, of, the, of the heartland Trump voter, which has always been narrowed down to, you know, are, um, are they motivated by their cultural prejudices or their economic struggles, right? And, and um, you know, her book helped me see how these are really intertwined, how it's, it's, it's difficult to sort of disaggregate and call person, you know, person A motivated by this, person B motivated just by that. 
And to show that more than, more than seeing how these struggles push them to vote for Trump or push them to vote for somebody else, that they showed how they often leave them believing that there's no place in the political system for them at all. Um, one of the most uh, striking moments in that book for me, for instance, was election day 2016, because it was written during the 2016 campaign and then through election day. And um, the author, she went to vote and she, you know, she comes back with her I voted sticker and she's all proud of herself. And she's then interviewing uh, the people she's discussing in the book. And they, they laughed at her. They, they mocked her for, for thinking that, for daring to believe that the political system would be responsive to her preferences and to her voice, um, because that's how they felt about it. And so that to me isn't necessarily a, a midpoint between resistance and base, but it is an entirely different insight that, that really stayed with me as I, as I read it. Another version of the people who feel like there is no place for me here in this particular political landscape are the never Trumpers, the disillusioned conservatives, the people who sort of are questioning what happened to my Republican Party. I'm assuming that that was a whole kind of subgroup of, of books, too. What were those like? Yes, um, I I read um maybe four or five of the of the books by the more prominent uh, Never Trump conservatives. And then in in my book, I, I, I put those, you know, in a in a broader chapter about the, the sort of divides um, in among the right. And those were books that I felt, uh, you know, were, were very focused on like what happened to my party, what happened to this movement that I've been a part of for so long. Um, and I thought did a real sort of grappling and kind of lament uh, about about the the conservative movement. Um, I write in the book that they're sort of like book length breakup letters to to their to their party and their and their movement. Um, one thing that struck me about them though is that I, I didn't feel that they fully wrestled with uh, sometimes their own role in what had come to pass. Um, a lot of these had been sort of long time uh, conservative commentators or Republican campaign strategists. And, you know, they had been fine kind of, um, you know, feeding this base um, or at least ignoring uh, the, the, the kind of like, you know, really um, intense, um, you know, base of support that the party um, in increasingly was, was, was embodied by. Um, until they couldn't really control it anymore, until it didn't produce one of their more uh, conventional Jeb Bush type uh, nominees. And suddenly it's like, oh my God, what have we done? What have we created? Um, and that, you know, that to me felt um, a little insufficient as a, as a reckoning. Um, that said, I think that, you know, they, they do a really good job at dissecting the problems and the evolution of, um, of the conservative movement and kind of show the inability now to do what um, past generations of conservatives had done, which is kind of like, you know, purge the most extremist voices uh, from the ranks. Those voices have kind of taken over and have left um, these kind of writers, you know, outside looking in. 
One of the ways in which to view the kind of Trump line of uh, the timeline of the Trump era, I, from my perspective as a book person, as a journalist, and I expect from your uh, perspective as well, have been this series of, you know, huge embargoed books that, you know, you, you hear about the book, it's going to come out and the embargo breaks and everyone writes about it and everyone jumps on it, it becomes a huge bestseller. And it's gone from, you know, Comey to the first Bob Woodward book, Fear, to Bolton, to the Melania Trump book to the next Bob Woodward. But the one that I think has started it all um, was probably Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury. And you write about, you start a chapter um, about that book. Um, the first line is, I blame Michael Wolff. What has he done <laughs> and why does it matter? Um, first of all, I, I hate reviewing those books where I have like no time. I have to stay up all night reading them and then like just crash something together. And I always try to tell publicists and publishers like saying, you're hurting yourself because you're not letting people, you know, really wrestle with a book, you know, just give me a few days, just slip it to me early. Give me just a few days to, to read it. But I don't, I never get anywhere. Um, I think Michael Wolf's book uh, is sort of perfect for like a, a time capsule of this period. Because, Bring people back to that moment because it now feels like 20 years ago. Yeah. So this was January 2018, right? He had spent a lot of, he had gotten, you know, amazing access hanging out um, in the White House. Um, and clearly Steve Bannon seemed to be a, a significant uh, sort of source and entry point for him. But it suddenly it popped. Like, you know, we heard just a, a little bit, you know, just that, that, it, that it was about to show up. And suddenly it's in the world and it's the only thing anyone can talk about. It was, these books, as you mentioned, have become almost commonplace, right? You know, there's there's so many of them now and they, you know, every few months there's like some huge bestseller, but this was the first and it was mind blowing. Everyone was talking about it. And I literally stayed up. I, I got the book on a Thursday afternoon and I stayed up most of the night reading it. And I started writing the next morning and I filed my review by three o'clock that afternoon on, on Friday. Um, and Michael Wolf has, I think that book created a, a, almost a race for the most, you know, oh my God, can you believe that anecdote? A kind of arms race among these books that like all the Trump books to follow have, um, have been competing for, have been, have been trying to get that, that story. And to my mind, it's done so it's maybe a disservice to those subsequent books themselves because sometimes the best stuff, you know, and the most deeply reported interesting revelations are not just the, you know, oh my God, you know, Trump in this meeting said this, or, you know, Trump stumbled while he was reading the words of the constitution because he didn't know what they meant, or, you know, people steal documents off his desk, you know, those are, you know, those are memorable. Um, but, for instance, in a book like A Very Stable Genius by my colleagues, Phil Rucker and Carol Lenig, which was a huge bestseller, it was stuff like that that ended up um, kind of overpowering the conversation surrounding the book. Um, and to me, that was far from the most interesting stuff in the book. Like that was the first book where I learned, for instance, that Robert Mueller's team had passed up the opportunity to take a look at the letter that Attorney General William Barr was going to put out characterizing the Mueller report. 
like in hindsight, that seems like a big mistake. You know, in hindsight, I really wish they had looked at that letter first and maybe weighed in. And so, you know, I learned that in in that book, right? Um, but it was not in any way what what dominated the the discourse around it. It's the same with with a book like like Rage uh, by by Bob Woodward, um, where the seventeen or eighteen conversations between Woodward and Trump uh, were the the dominant part of the of the coverage surrounding the book. But in fact, the first half of the book is about you know, major national security challenges, largely through the eyes of Jim Mattis, who was defense secretary, and Dan Coates, the director of national intelligence, and how worried they were about, you know, an actual nuclear conflict with North Korea. You know, like that to me seemed like a really big deal. And um, and those parts of these books often get overshadowed because of the Michael Wolff phenomenon that that we're just looking for for the mayhem, for the for the insanity, but they became a little commonplace. I mean, Michael Wolf's second Wolf, my, Michael Wolf's second book on the Trump White House siege, just kind of came and went. It did not receive anywhere the same kind of attention. Um, I think because, you know, after a while, this was the presidency that that shocked without without surprising us really anymore. We were kind of used to that chaos. It feels like you know, we're constantly saying about the internet and the news cycle that it is so fast. We hardly have time to catch our breath, to understand what something means, to digest it. It sounds like the book cycle is sort of starting to mimic that in certain ways that we, because there is this rush for these tell-all books with salacious, you know, anecdotes and uh, juicy bits to dissect immediately, that we're losing some of what books generally do best, which is to offer a kind of perspective and deeper and broader thinking than you can generally get in the kind of rush of the 24-7 news cycle. I think there is a, a risk of that. Um, I think that uh, if you go back and even just look at political campaigns, right, um, the the book that is largely widely considered to be one of the greatest campaign books in American history is What It Takes. Um, and that book came out, what, four or five years after the 1988 campaign, Richard Ben Kramer's book. Um, that's unthinkable now, right? Like the the books come out almost before the campaign is over, right? The um, even Game Change came out a year and a half after the race, after the 2008 race. You know, now they, you know, if they're more than a, than than a few months out, um, they feel incredibly dated, um, and I think that has to have an impact on, um, on the depth of the reporting, on, um, or even when they are very deeply reported on just how much time the writers have to really think through and digest what they've uncovered. And so I, I do think that, you know, books are coming close to mimicking the speed of kind of long magazine pieces, right? And long magazine pieces are mimicking the speed of, you know, op-eds and blog posts. And, and that's, um, that's probably less than ideal for, um, you know, for readers, for writers who have to crash through material a lot more quickly, but also just for, for lack of a better term, for, for history, because, you know, people look back on these initial accounts uh, to start crafting, you know, larger histories of a period. And, um, and you know, we, we lose something probably 
uh, in this kind of quest for speed. I don't see it going away, though. Well, you mentioned earlier, it obviously affects the way that you approach a review as a book critic. What gets lost? Well, let's start with what do you try to do if you had, let's say, the luxury of two or three weeks to review something, Mm -hmm. um, to read and review something like uh, Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury? Like, what would you have done with that extra time that you can't really accomplish when you're writing against, you know, a 24-hour deadline? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, with Michael Wolff's book, I'm not sure. I probably would have tried to contrast, for instance, some of his revelations or reporting with reporting at the time to see where things lined up or where was he really delivering something totally new or was it um, or was or was he, um, you know, covering material that we've already, you know, been overwhelmed by. Um, I think where it becomes more useful is in, so say, you know, uh, soon we're going to get Barack Obama's memoir. Right, volume one of his his presidential memoir, which is um, coming out on the seventeenth of November, and with a book like that, which I expect I won't get until very shortly before it's out, with a book like that, I'd want to do so much. I'd want to compare it to, you know, Dreams from My Father and Audacity of Hope. I'd want to look at other, you know, David Marinus's biography of Obama and David Garrow's and David Remnick. They're all Davids, I guess. And, <laughs> and, um, and, you know, see what I can, what I can find, see what, what stands out, see where maybe Obama himself has reconsidered things he had written before. You know, you want to put that sort of book uh, in, in conversation um, with past works and with history in a way, you know, that, that book is going to, both be a furthering of the Obama story, but it also be in conversation and in competition with other presidential memoirs. You know, like how does it stack up against against Clinton's book or um, against George H.W. Bush's writings or, you know, the gold standard Grant's memoir, right? You know, there's so much you can do um, with a book like that rather than just plow through it in a couple of days and then, you know, dash off 1200 words telling people, you know, some of the highlights. Um, Do you spend those weeks ahead of time sort of doing that background reading? I'm sorry? Do you spend the week, those weeks ahead of time, ahead of getting the book and sort of having to rush the writing of that review? Do you spend it doing that background reading, you know, reading uh, the David's memoirs? Yeah. Sometimes yeah. I do. I did that when, when David Garrow's Obama biography came out a few years ago. I did read um, two other Obama uh, biographies before that because I wanted to see what was novel here. Um, and when I can, I, I, I try to sort of fill in my, um, my, the, the gaps in my, in my own knowledge, um, which are considerable, um, you know, especially, you know, I, I moved back and forth a lot between the United States and Peru growing up. And I did most of my junior high and high school in, in, in Peru. And so I often feel like there was, there's all these like huge chunks of Americana that I missed out on and that I never read. Um, and so it's this constant insecurity. So yes, I am. I am often, um, you know, reading prior works that I hope can give me some insight into whatever I'm going to be reading next. 
Um, Carlos, if it's <laughs> if it's any consolation, I've been here my whole life, basically, and I don't understand why every Obama memoir is written by someone named David either. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's one aspect of Americana that's probably inexplicable. When you're writing a book like this, obviously, some of it, I imagine, is to answer questions that you have um, about, you know, what does this era mean? But obviously, you're writing for an audience, you're writing for readers to sort of translate all of these books and, and, and condense them and 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 um, give them some kind of some kind of meaning or answer to readers. But I'm curious which questions motivated you personally. Like, What was it that you were trying to figure out for yourself in writing this book? So I think it, it has to flow from the kind of um, writing that I do as a as a book critic. And when I'm when I'm you know reading any single book, I'm trying to figure out um, you know what is the underlying argument here, um, you know what is left out, um, what what is this writer bringing to the table that that just you know didn't exist before and the. I often get, you know, disgruntled writers telling me that I that I miss the point of their books. But my my favorite response is when someone says, you know, like you pointed out something in my book that I hadn't even realized was there. And so I think um, for me that's that's like you know bingo. That's 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 the great moment. Um, and so I think I've tried to do that in in my book. I've tried to do that with this whole universe of of Trump books. I've been trying to see. You know, is there something that I can get at that is beyond the sort of very stark but simple divides of this period? And so, for instance, um, you know, when I encounter Jennifer Silva's book that I mentioned earlier, you know, it was that kind of moment for me. It's like, oh, this is this is a chance to look beyond, you know, is it economic struggles or cultural prejudice? This is this is. This is a different idea. And that that moment of insight, you know, which which shouldn't be so rare, but, you know, these years has felt a little rare um, is is just like this warm bath that, that, that comes over me as a as a reader. And so I've wanted to try to I wanted to read these books in a in a sense to try to get past whatever my own kind of easy um, uh, preconceptions and, and blind spots have been about different parts of, of, of the Trump era thus far. And what it's, what it's allowed me, I think that the one thing I've, I've walked away with is that all the fights that we're having, um, whether over immigration or over democracy or presidential norms, or, you know, all the, all the, over identity and, and race, uh, they are just a constant ever present part of the American story. They, um, yeah. No, go ahead. No, and 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 those have been the best books for me. You know, the the ones, and maybe this is obvious to, to everyone, um, but but it wasn't necessarily so to me. Um, that that this is just uh, this is not not an, an anomaly. It's maybe anomalous that they're happening all at once, but it's not an anomaly in the American story. And books that have helped me see that, that have shown how we how this period fits into the long arc of of American history. Have been the ones that have been um, both uh, most helpful, uh, sometimes most discouraging, um, but also the ones that just help you think like, okay, let's, you know, this is our turn. One thing that struck me is that you mentioned in your book that 
you certain books you'd actually reviewed and then reread for the write for writing this book that, that your own opinion of them changed over time. And I'm curious if there were other ways in which writing this book, your first book, changed the way you approach your work as a as a book critic. Uh there were certainly books that did that, um, books where I felt, or it's not that sort of as a book that I loved and then I read three years later and suddenly I hated or or the <laughs> other way around, but it was more that I, I saw different things in them, that, that what had struck me most the first time was not at all what I found most important the, the second time around. Uh, Timothy Snyder's book on tyranny did that for me, for instance. At the beginning, I was struck by its very prophetic, you know, post-truth is pre-fascism, these very dramatic moments in the book. Um, and when I was rereading it in 2019, 2020, what strikes me most about that book is his, um, his refrain of just being mindful of protecting key institutions, right? Just, you know, pick institutions you care about and, and, and stick by them. Um, and so I, I felt that that with some books, I, I just encountered things that I may have just like passed over quickly the first time around. And I, I do imagine that it'll maybe um, give me some more humility when I'm, when I'm reviewing, uh, knowing that, you know, all I can do is grapple with a book in the moment um, and whatever strikes me, strikes me. Um, but to sort of have enough self-awareness to realize that you know, this may not be the most important thing about this argument or this book, um, and that there's a certain ephemeral nature to uh, to my own deep probing insights about about each of these each of these works. These are people who spend years, you know, lifetimes sometimes, you know, on this work, and I show up and I spend a couple of days reading them, and then and then trying to pass, you know, some kind of judgment on them. It seems grossly unfair, and <laughs> I think having to reread and reconsider these books. Um, is is useful for me because I I realize that there's often more there than I anticipate. Well, Carlos, you've already won a Pulitzer Prize for criticism for your uh, book of criticism for the Washington Post. You've read more than 150 books on the Trump era for your first book, and now you'll be a kinder critic uh, to boot. So, <laughs> congratulations on all of that. Thank you so much, Pamela. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org.